This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su-An. Bypass surgery and angioplasty are two of the most widely used treatments for coronary artery disease, and they both have a long track record in medicine. Bypass surgery was first done in 1960, while the first coronary angioplasty was done not too long after, in 1977. So what are the differences between these two procedures and how do doctors determine which one is more suitable for individual patients? What factors do they consider, um, especially looking at the patient's lifestyle and long-term quality of life? So we'll be discussing these questions and more with Dr. Jayakantan Kolantai-Velu, consultant cardiologist from Cardiac Vascular Central KL. Dr. Jaya, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, we know that heart disease um, is the number one killer in Malaysia. We hear that every year in the news, um, barring the one year where COVID-19 um, took first place. But what do we actually know about the number of people who are living with coronary artery disease? Well, interesting question. I mean, um, whenever we... Uh when we approach a problem, we are always taught that there's this tip of the iceberg and everything else is below. And that's exactly where we stand with uh, coronary heart disease. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the patients, essentially, uh, when we talk about coronary heart disease, we always say it's a disease of the elderly, you know, when you're in your 50s, 60s. But that's not the case anymore, unfortunately. Uh, We're seeing a lot more young people come in with a heart attack in their 30s, early 40s. um, and, And the only way... Um, uh, to know how bad the problem is, is if we screen everybody. And that's obviously not feasible. Mm. Economically, definitely not feasible. Mm -hmm. So uh, in my opinion, I think there are many people walking around with some some form of coronary artery disease. It may not be severe or critical because, you know, a lot of times you don't have symptoms until it's really going to cause you a problem. Mm. So I think the problem is a lot bigger Mm -hmm. than what we no, and it probably is going to get worse with with lifestyles. I mean, essentially lifestyle. T- uh, I mean, healthy lifestyle taking a backseat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we ha- we likely have a lot of people walking around um, unaware that they are they have coronary artery disease. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. But even while that's the case, right, um, as you said, a lot of people have milder, um, milder degrees of it. Not everyone, I guess, would require invasive or even minimally invasive procedures. So if we first look at that aspect, right, what medical treatments will be considered first when someone is diagnosed with um, coronary artery disease before you move on to invasive procedures? So um, essentially, I think, uh, number one, the most important thing is awareness. Mm. So everyone needs to be aware that they have to uh, take care of their health. That's number one. Number two, taking care of your health also means knowing what you have. So you've got to do regular medical checkups in some form, at least blood tests. Yeah, uh, If you reach um, 40 years of age uh, without any risk factors, if you're a male, go and check your heart. Do a stress test. You know, that's the most basic, most simple thing to do. Uh, you don't have to see a cardiologist to do a stress test. Mm. You can even see a, a, a general physician or some really good senior GPs, family medicine specialists who, who, who can do stress tests and interpret a stress test results. And, you know, they will advise you, look, if something is not right, then they're going to send you to a cardiologist for further review. Um, so understanding 
what you have becomes very important. So mm-hmm. that is how you tailor essentially treatment, mm-hmm. right? So if you have really high cholesterol, uh, then it's something to talk about. Um, uh, if you have diabetes, you got to get that in control very well. If you've got high blood pressure, then you're going to get that controlled very well. I mean, we can talk about each treatment separately, but that, that's not uh, that's a different part. So we've got to get all the risk factors well controlled. You're tackling the root causes of it, right? Exactly. So, and if you're smoking, stop smoking. You know, uh, those are those important things. And then you have to be aware that look, if I don't start living healthy, mm-hmm. then I, my lifespan is going to get shorter and shorter. Uh, that's that's what it is. So, find out what the problem is. Uh, essentially, we're going to f- we're going to look for what's going to cause your coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. Control that very well so that it doesn't progress. Mm-hmm. From your experience, do you have any challenges in getting patients to address those root causes? Because every time we talk about lifestyle changes, it's never easy. That is ninety nine percent of my problem in the clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to get patients to understand that look, if you do this well, then we give yourself you give yourself a really good chance. Mm. There's nothing that is hundred percent in this world. So, uh, my uh, how I address this with my patients is I always tell them, look, we control what is in our hands, mm-hmm. controlling your sugar, controlling your cholesterol, you know, uh, your your blood pressure, your lifestyle. This is in our hands. So we control that well means we have done our part. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is the hand that you're dealt with. Mm. So then after that is done, after you've gone through those um, treatment options, management options with patients, when do you deem it necessary then to intervene with the procedure? So it all, uh, generally, if, if we look at all uh, sort of studies and, and, and evidences, uh, essentially it's only advice to intervene if patients have symptoms mm-hmm. or they have some form of test which has shown that, you know, maybe you're at a risk of getting a heart attack. So, uh, and we do that periodically, like uh, we do a stress test every year for patients with risk factors. And then uh, we have a baseline stress test usually and if that progresses, then we know something is not right. Then we give them treatment options like... Uh, first of all, we need to know what's going on. So some patients may not want an invasive angiogram. They say, please do a CT scan for me. Mm-hmm. And if CT scan confirms that it's a severe disease, then we move forward with that. So usually most of the times we only intervene if patient has symptoms or there's some form of test showing mm-hmm. that you're at risk of getting a heart attack. Mm. What's happening in the cardiovascular system that would already that would cause the, the patient to have symptoms? If you could... Give us a bit of an anatomy one-on-one. Um, uh, essentially, uh, your coronary arteries are like a, like a tube, yeah? mm-hmm. um, a, a cylindrical tube. So uh, as you get clogged up with cholesterol, your blood flow gets reduced and reduced and reduced. So And this so-called cholesterol, have, uh, they have a cap, which is most of the time fairly thin, hard mm-hmm. cap. But, and then when they reach a level of 70%, 80%, now you only have 20% blood flow left, so your heart's not getting enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it screams for help. And that's that's the symptoms that you get. Either it's pain or uh, heaviness or breathlessness, whatever whatever the pain that symptoms come with. So, uh, and those 80, 70% and above blocks are at a higher risk of getting a heart attack based on studies. So those are the things that uh, requires treatment. 
All right, we'll go for a quick break now and continue this discussion. When we come back on the show with me today is Dr. Jaya Kantan Kolantai-Velu, consultant cardiologist at Cardiac Vascular Central KL. He's joining me on the show today to shed some light on the differences between an angioplasty and a bypass and when someone with coronary artery disease would require either one of these procedures and how it would help them in the management of their disease. We'll be right back after a few quick messages on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su And Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Jayakantan Kolantai-Velu, consultant cardiologist at Cardiac Vascular Central KL. He's joining me on the show today to shed some light on two very um, widely used treatments for coronary artery disease, and that's bypass surgery and angioplasty. Before the break, we were talking a bit about the incidence of um, coronary artery disease here in Malaysia and how, or rather, when patients would need more invasive or minimally invasive procedures, which would be either one of these two, um, and when you know he would deem it necessary for a patient to move on from management of the disease with medications to requiring these procedures. Um, now, Dr. Jaya, let's zoom in on these particular procedures, right? On the one hand, we have the coronary artery bypass. On the other hand, we have the angioplasty. Um, what exactly are both of these procedures and how do they help patients with coronary artery disease? So coronary artery bypass grafting is essentially a major surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an open heart surgery. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it's been an important tool for us to be able to treat our patients. Um, and even, uh, I, I'm not the best person to talk about bypass surgery, obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm not a surgeon, but it has advanced so much that, you know, the, the outcomes with bypass surgery are getting better and better. And uh, it's an important tool for us to treat our patients with, you know, major severe blockages, um, patients with valve issues uh, and and uh, other things that come with it. Coronary angioplasty is, uh, it's, it's what we call a percutaneous procedure, meaning that you don't have, uh, it's not an open heart surgery. And we treat everything via access from either your hands, which is the radial artery, mm-hmm. or your legs, which is the femoral artery generally. And uh, uh, so uh, comparing these two becomes a little difficult because it's like comparing an apple and orange. Mm. It, it, you cannot compare it. So uh, uh, how we should look at it is which patient benefits most from what? Mm. So uh, th- that's how we should look at it. Yeah. So how do you determine that? What do you look at in the patient to determine which is what they need? What are the pros and cons of each procedure depending on the circumstances? So a lot of times, uh, especially with our diabetic populations, mm. we we have uh, they have really bad uh, arterial blockages, so which involves you know all three arteries, or they have a hundred percent multiple hundred percent blockages, or blockages that involve the left main artery, for instance. So. In these kind of scenarios, usually I'll advise and tell the patient, look, your best option, long-term option, will be bypass surgery. Because uh, you have so many blockages, mm. we'll have to end up putting so many stents, long stents. And uh, essentially, guideline says that uh, with this kind of blockages, the best option is bypass surgery. So uh, if you have multiple blockages with valve-related issues, then bypass definitely is the way to go because you, you solve all the problems in one go. So then for, 
I guess if I could put it that way, milder cases of blockages, then then stents or angioplasty would be the preferred option. True. Mm. Yes. But with advancements in the skills of cardiologists and cath labs, right? Angioplasty, um, I understand, can also be done for more complex cases. So then how do you still see bypass being the absolute go-to? Are there situations where you might consider the differences between the two a bit more? Yeah. Now, um, it's there's an important part that uh, I think we, we have to understand is patient preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as you put rightly put, ad- there's there's great advancement in skill set and and tools that we have now that we can deal with so many different things um, percutaneously without needing bypass surgery. But my personal practice is that if I feel that a patient is better suited for bypass surgery, I and I feel that the outcome with bypass surgery will be good, mm. meaning that when they put in a bypass graft, I will hope that it will last the, the intended length. Meaning that if, if you put a bypass graft on a 40-year-old, I want the bypass graft to last 20 years or more, right? So if I feel that uh, that will be the best option for the patient, I will offer that option to the patient. But Asian patients, let me tell you, oh my God, um, they really don't want surgery. I try to convince mm. them so hard, they really don't want surgery. A lot, m- many of them. And they say, no doctor, please do. You do this first, we'll think about bypass. <laughs> but, so, but in such cases, you would be putting patients uh, p- through it twice, right? Essentially, if they go for an angioplasty. Uh, well, we hope that we do, like you said, our mm-hmm. skills have improved, our tools have improved. So we the intention is always to do as good as a job, right, uh, with angioplasty so that it will last as long as a bypass. A bypass. Yeah. Mm. So how do you approach those discussions with patients then, right? Because you have that pushback from them. They don't want surgery. What do you ask them to find out what they want so that it's more of a, um, it's more of a two-way decision-making process sure. rather than just coming from you? Absolutely. So what <clears throat> usually I start off with, you know, I, I discuss the, what they have, mm-hmm. right? How bad their blockages are. Of course, a lot of things also comes into play, the heart function and, and how well their risk factors are controlled. Uh, and I tell them, look, essentially, uh, I think that if you go for bypass, this will be the best for long term. Mm. Especially younger patients, I tell them, look, I cannot think four years, five years for you. I have to think 20 years, 30 years for you. Long term like, quality of life. Yeah. And, and I don't want you coming back for repeated procedures in like five years, six years. We don't want that for you. Mm. We have to think that what I do for you that can last the longest so you have the best because your 40s to your 60s is the most productive. Right. So we have to ensure that number one, you are economically capable of working and, you know, building yourself. Rather than, you know, you come back every four or five years because every, uh, let's say they come back with a, some form of heart attack every four or five years. Every time you have a heart attack, it affects your heart function, it drops. And you come to a point when you're going to heart failure. So we don't want that. So so I, I would look at those kind of things. So then I say that is option one and I send them to a surgeon. I let them speak to a surgeon because mm. I think that's the best way. So when, when they talk to the surgeon, if the surgeon feels that they can give a good outcome, and that, that's all and well. So I usually try my very hard to insist for them to speak to the surgeon at least. And then they come back to me and they say, look, I understand. This is my best option, but I want option number two, mm. which is angioplasty. And a lot of times, to be very honest, angioplasty can be more expensive than bypass surgery. 
Because bypass surgery, you go in once, you sort everything out. Mm-hmm. Angioplasty, I may have to do it in more than one session. You know, you need multiple stands, multiple tools, multiple devices, uh, especially with, you know, really hardened blockages. Sometimes you have to drill to break it and use special balloons, special tools. So the cost becomes mm. uh, uh, really elevated sometimes. So we, I discuss all this with the patients. Mm. So then the ball is in their hands. Um, obviously, there's a third option. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything, just take medication. But but symptomatic patients, I, I usually tell them, look, this not, may not be a good option because if you have another event, things may go south. So, mm. yeah, that, that's how I usually approach it so that they have all the information necessary to make uh, the best decision for themselves. Mm. But being Asian patients... It's like, so what would you do, doctor? Mm, <laughs> and that's the most difficult thing. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of times, well, I would say that if I, because I advise you, your first option is bypass, I think you should go for bypass. So that, that's how I approach it. Mm. And then for patients, for some other patients, then this might be quite overwhelming, right? To be presented with options, with an option that, look, now you have to have a procedure done, whether it's minimally invasive or an open heart surgery. What do you think patients should ask you when they're in that space so that they or they make sure that they are also informed and that their concerns are addressed? So I, I think number one, patients should, they should want to know is how long this thing is going to last? How often do I have to redo it? I think that's very important. Uh, if, if There's no guarantees in anything, mm. right? Uh, we, we, we will advise you what's best that we think will last you the longest, so whether that's bypass or angioplasty. Yeah? So they will need to know which lasts longer. Usually there's a very standard question that patients ask me. But as you pointed out, our tools have improved so much with intervention. I don't think we're very far off from bypass surgery. But the caveat is we don't put multiple long blockages, long stents. So the longer stents we put, the higher chances they come back with blockage. So essentially, in that scenario, bypass becomes better. Mm. Yeah. So they need to know that how long it's going to last. Number two, uh, they are also. I mean, patients need to know that they have a right to a second opinion. Mm. I always tell my patients, look, if you're confused, go get a second opinion. See what the other person says. If it's in line of what I've advised you, then be on the right track, right? So, and I never tell the patients, okay, you have to do the procedure with me. I said, look, you need the procedure. It, I'm okay with you doing it anyway, but just please get it done, you know? Um, so ultimately, they need to know that they have rights and they have a right to a second opinion. Uh, some, some patients have more than second, three, four. I've, I've seen them all. Yeah, so, and, and, and they also should ask me what I need to do to make myself healthier. Mm. And when they ask me that question, uh, then they need to be ready to... Basically, it's a, it's a discipline. Mm. It's not easy, but it's a discipline, meaning that you're taking your meds regularly, eating right, uh, the, the usual stuff that the we talk about all the time. The procedure isn't the silver bullet. It's not. I, mean, the, I always tell my patients, the procedure or whatever it, what I, medications I give you is 
90% is what you do with your 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 life. It may change a lot of things. Mm. Earlier, Dr. Jaya, you mentioned that nowadays we're seeing more younger people being um, diagnosed with coronary artery disease, people in their 30s and 40s coming in um, to see you. How does that, how does age in particular affect the decision on whether, uh, and I guess you touched on this earlier, right? You said young, for younger people, you, you think about long term, but if you could elaborate a bit more, how do you have that discussion with them? Um, so, uh, now, um, it's more difficult to convince younger people, uh, especially if they need bypass surgery. And and our mm. thinking, the way, way, way we, are, we are thinking also, you know, oh, this guy is in his 30s, I don't want to send him for surgery. So let's do something. So uh, I would say earlier in my career, the thinking was like that. Mm. Like, you know, young people, I really don't want to send them for surgery because, you know, I don't want to, this 30-year-old guy to undergo, you know, go under the knife. So, but as... Uh, as my career progressed, as I look at it, you can't see the age anymore, mm. to be very honest. If you still feel that bypass is the best for the patient, regardless of the age, you should offer that to the patient because then that would hopefully last the longest for him. Mm. Unless obviously it's a, it's a simple, simple lesion, something that you know, doesn't require. Essentially, when you, have, when you have heart disease, your lifespan is essentially shortened, mm. right? And you combine that with diabetes, your lifespan gets shorter. So you cannot look at 30, 30 anymore. So they may be you know, essentially older. So um, so I right now, even if I get my patients in their 30s and 40s, if I still think that my is a better option than intervention, I still do it. It looks like I'm a surgeon talking for, the, <laughs> for surgery. But mm. what is right? Mm. You know, we do what is right. Yeah. Mm. And in terms of recovery, I guess, when we look at both angioplasty and open heart surgery, right, what are the key differences there? Like to sort of, I guess, compare, right? Um, angioplasty is minimally invasive, bypass surgery is an open heart surgery. Oh, the differences? Yeah. Apple and orange again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Two different things. Uh, it, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to make patients understand that, mm. you know, doctor, if I go for bypass surgery, you know, I'm out for like six weeks and... And, you know, my heart is cut open, leg is cut open. And, uh, but I tell the patients very simply this. Look, when you go for surgery, you're asleep. When you wake up, everything is done. So whatever they do, whatever, heart is open, whatever, nothing. You're only left with scars, mm-hmm. which will essentially heal within two to three weeks. Yeah. And, 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 and that's that. And you have something that you have essentially new piping, right? So, but some patients say, no, I... I cannot afford to be out for so long. Some sometimes they make decisions based on uh, uh, they want immediate sort of you know be able to get back on their feet really mm. quickly because you know they can't leave their work or whatever it is. So uh, so essentially, when you do angioplasty, it's just tiny punches, and you, sometimes we do it in the hand. You're walking straight away. Mm. If you're doing the leg, you know, you, you rest for about four or six hours. But, you know, you're back on your feet within the same day or the next day. So, uh, and obviously, there's less recovery mm. uh, time with uh, uh, angioplasty compared to bypass surgery. Mm. The type of surgery aside, and I guess the invasiveness of it aside, are there other factors that determine how fast the patient gets back on their feet? Uh uh, the patient factor itself. So uh, we have to look at, you know, sometimes uh, uh, 
if the patient has diabetes, for instance, um, or uh, the heart function is really poor. Mm-hmm. So sometimes these kind of patients take a bit longer to recover compared to patients you know who are not diabetic and um, whose heart function is good. So essentially, we have to optimize treatment, get them to target, and and uh, then they get better. Mm. How successful are each of these procedures in treating uh, coronary artery disease, especially if we talk about reducing symptoms or even preventing heart attacks? Absolutely. I mean, these are essentially the three ways to go. Mm. Surgery, angioplasty or medication. Um, And I think that the combination of... Medicine is always there. So the combination of this has... uh, And the... uh, amazing improvement in in, 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 in uh, drugs that are available for us to treat patients have been, I, I would say, successfully brought down, uh, I mean, successfully being able to treat patient symptoms 99% and above. Yeah. Maybe even higher, to be very honest. Yeah. Mm. What about um, durability of these procedures, right? Because you spoke earlier, you don't, I mean, ideally, you don't want to see patients having to come back to see you again and again or to see the surgeon again and again. But what, what kind of follow-up interventions are usually needed? So if we, if we look back 20 years ago uh, or 30 years ago for that matter, mm-hmm. the, the, in terms of angioplasty, the the tools that we have, the stents have improved leaps and bounds. Mm. Yeah, so I would say sometimes they say yeah we put a stent it lasts about eight years. It's not the case anymore. Mm. You know the stents are so good these days. If we really do a good job, make sure that the angioplasty procedure is very well done and you control the risk factor as well. It may last you as long as a bypass. Right, mm. of course, the bypass is essentially new piping, so we expect that to last as long as it should—twenty-five years, thirty years, hopefully. I mean, of course, this is best-case scenario. Some people come back within a number of years, even after bypass. Right, so uh, the most important, crucial thing is regular follow-up. Mm. So you follow up regularly, uh, especially if you had bypass surgery, whether it's your with your family medicine specialist or a physician or a general practitioner or your cardiologist. And there should be periodic reassessment in terms of uh, whatever modality, stress tests or whatever. Not. Yeah. Mm. And of course, how you manage your lifestyle also Absolutely. affects that, right? Some patients think, you know, you put in a stand, I'm done. All in well. Uh, and I don't have to take any medications, it's good. They come back a year later with another heart attack. Mm. You know, so it, what we do is just a small part. You know, patients have to comply to their medications regularly. There's a reason why all these medications are given. So, and those are also important questions that, you know, coming back to the earlier that you mm. asked me, those are the important questions that patients should ask the doctors. So why are you giving me this medicine? It's, it's not wrong to ask the doctor because I'm prescribing you a medicine and I'm going to force you to take it for the rest of your life. You want to know what it's for. Mm. So I think that that also becomes very important. Mm. Yeah. I guess understanding what the medicine is for makes you more likely to stick to it, right? Because you yeah. understand how it's helping your body. Exactly. Mm. Speaking of medication, you've alluded to this earlier, Dr. Jaya, in terms of advances, you've seen medications improve, right? The types of drugs that are used. Um, tell me more about that. What are some of the more exciting advances um, that has so, helped patients? So now, um, the most difficult thing in, in cardiology for us is when we have patients with heart failure. Mm. Yeah. So there are some wonderful drugs that have come on board, uh, essentially 
giving mortality benefit. Mm. Meaning that, you know, when you take this drug, you're less likely to die um, by a certain percent, 10%, 15%, whatever it is. So, uh, so some of these heart failure medications are really uh, changed the game, to be very honest. Whether they improve the heart function or not is a question mark, mm. right? Uh, but what they do is they improve symptoms greatly. They, reduces, they reduce the chance of you getting readmitted for heart failure, which is economically very good. And they essentially improve quality of life. So uh, there are essentially four important drugs in heart failure, right? Uh, one is called something called a beta blocker. Another one, something is called ARNI, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is the new kid on the block, essentially, but it's been a while. Uh, it's been there for like the last four years or five years. And then there's another something else called a, a, a SGLT2 inhibitor. It's essentially, it's a diabetic drug, but it's a heart failure blockbuster. Mm. Yeah, so we even give it for patients without diabetes now because it's it's it makes a lot of difference. And then there's that's something that's been there for donkey years. Something called mineral corticoids, um, L-dectons. Yeah, so so essentially, uh, and I foresee more further advances uh, as we come as we go along. Mm. So that has greatly helped us, to be very honest. Yeah. Do you think we'll see a day where coronary artery disease will be able to be fully managed with just medications? I that that would be great for cardiologists because we have less work to do. But I it, it's I don't think so. I I, mm. I honestly don't think so. There is no magic uh, magic drug that makes it all go away. Mm. All right. To wrap up our conversation today, Dr. Jaya, would you have a final message for patients, as, as for people who have been diagnosed with coronary artery disease? So um, I would say take it very seriously because um, a heart attack or stroke, I mean, essentially the disease process is the same. Uh, it can be very debilitating. Mm. Yeah. So before it becomes an attack, you know, go for a regular checkup, you know, uh, control your risk factors very well, change your lifestyle because you know something is not right already. And hopefully together, you know, we can ensure that we, you know, you have a good life. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Jaya. Thank you, Suen. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking to Dr. Jayakantan Kolantai-Velu, consultant cardiologist at Cardiac Vascular KL, about... Um, the differences between angioplasty and a bypass and how do doctors like himself determine which is more suitable for individual patients. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.